Good morning, friends, and welcome to Village Park Online. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Hope you've got your cup of coffee, grab your Bible. We're going to dive into the Word of God uh, this morning. We're actually going to be in 1 Peter. We're going to continue our series through this wonderful book of encouragement, finding hope in the midst of chaos. About a month ago, it was July 4th weekend, and one of my traditions is that weekend I love to watch patriotic movies, and one of my favorite to watch is Saving Private Ryan. If you haven't seen the movie, uh, it's about a squad that's going out to find one of the soldiers uh, that's kind of scattered throughout the countryside, and they go on these different, uh, they're going to find him, and along the way they face these different uh, circumstances and difficulty, but there's an ongoing theme throughout the movie, and the squad is trying to figure out what Captain Miller, their leader, did before the war. And there's this really difficult scene, very trying uh, time that they had gone through, and it kind of leads to a head where Captain Miller finally reveals what he did before the war to his group. And so I'd like to show you the video and then talk a little bit about uh, how that relates to what we're going to talk about today. What's the pool on me up to right now? What, what, what's it up to? Wait, what is it, uh, $300? Is that it? $300? I'm a school teacher. I teach English composition. This little town called Abley, Pennsylvania. It's, uh, in the last 11 years, I've been at Thomas Alva Edison High School. I was a coach of the baseball team in the springtime. Back home, and I tell people what I do for a living, and they think, well, now that figures. But over here, it's uh, a big, big mystery. So I guess I've changed some. Sometimes I wonder if I've changed so much, my wife is even going to recognize me whenever it is I get back to her. And how I'll ever be able to to tell her about days like today. Uh, Ryan, I don't know anything about Ryan. I don't care. This man means nothing to me. It's just a name. But if, you know, if going to Ramel and finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then, then that's my mission. You want to leave? You want to go off and fight the war? All right. All right. I won't stop you. I'll even put in the paperwork. I just know that every man I kill, the farther away from home I feel. I really love that line when Captain Miller says, I just know that every man I kill, the farther away from home I feel. And it seems like for me at least, with every passing day, I feel less and less at home. When I check my news feed, I look at social media, I read the online headlines, I'm feeling less and less at home. And I don't know if you feel that way as well, but these are just such crazy and strange times. And maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we, we're, we find ourselves in the midst of a culture that is mixing the lines of what is right and wrong and good and bad. Uh, we live with dishonest politicians and dishonest media. Our culture is inundated with godless philosophy and secularism and worldviews that are contrary to the word of God. Those have now become 
the norm. We, we find ourselves in the midst of a culture where there is no standard of truth. You can't tell people that something is right or wrong. We, can, we find it difficult to even call certain things sin anymore. And, and this world, to me, feels less and less like home. And maybe that's a good thing. The truth is, is that we, we shouldn't feel at home here. Everything in Peter's letter, as we've been studying this uh, over the last month or so, has pointed to this truth, that we are to live with hope in the midst of a culture of hopelessness, that we are called to live godly and holy lives in the midst of an unholy culture, and we're to love others in the midst of a culture of selfishness, and to be different and be a chosen generation, a called out group of people that are set aside for a specific purpose. And Peter began his letter, I want to remind you in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, he called the believers to whom he was writing elect exiles. They were exiles, they were strangers. He was reminding them that where they were as they were scattered throughout Asia Minor, that they weren't at home. And imagine for a moment, if you can, try to put yourself in the sandals of these first century Christians how unlike home their culture would have been like. They were facing Roman persecution. In fact, the historians tell us that neighbors were turning them in for their faith and their faith was being ridiculed in the public places. And he continues, Peter continues in his letter to these exiles, he continues along the same thought in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He reminds us in verse 11 of our position that we are aliens and strangers in this world. And that means that we should live our lives in such a way with that we stand apart or stand out among the culture in both our attitudes and in our actions. I was thinking this week about when we went to adopt Ellie in 2015, we took our entire family to China. And I remember on one day, uh, here we are, we have uh, five Americans and then we have our newly adopted Chinese daughter and we go to a park. And the park is just filled with Chinese people. <clears throat> and we just stuck out at, at that park. I mean, every ride that we went to, there was a, a crowd that gathered around and they took out their phones and they were recording us because it's very rare for them to see an entire family of Americans in that culture. Everywhere we went, people would stare at us and look at us because we look different. And Paul reminds these Christians in the midst of their culture that they were to look and to be different. In fact, he gives five exhortations for the Christians in verses 11 and 12. First of all, he says, do not adopt the sinful attitudes of your culture. He says to them, abstain from the passions of your flesh. The war that is being waged, he reminds them, is a war against your soul, your conscience, your understanding, and your judgment of what is right and wrong. And I want to encourage you parents to really take heed of this. Your children are being raised in a culture where musicians and TV programs and online programs, even the games that they play, the YouTubers that they listen to, they are waging war against the souls of our children. There are godless philosophies that are being hurled at us. The, the standards of right and wrong are not based in the Bible. And Peter reminds us that we are not to adopt the sinful attitudes and thinking of our culture. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that the battle for holiness is won or lost. It's fought in the battlefield of our minds. And a Christian who lives at home in the mindset of an unholy culture will be ineffective in their walk with Christ. 
So he says, do not adopt the sinful attitudes of the culture. In fact, write that down in the comments that we as children of God, we are called to not adopt the sinful attitudes of our culture. But listen also what he says in those verses. He says, live with integrity. We're called to live with integrity, to walk the walk, to not just talk about what it means to be a Christian. But in verse 12, notice he talks about their conduct. That word conduct among the Gentiles, it means a lifestyle or a way of life. The way that we live is to be, he says, honorable or honest. So we're to live lives of integrity. The third exhortation here is to do good among unbelievers. So that when they see, excuse me, when they speak against you as evildoers in verse 12, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In verse 12, he references the Gentiles. That doesn't refer to a race. It refers to those who are outside of the faith. It refers to those who are unbelievers. And he says he wants you to live in a way that they would see your good deeds. When we see someone are in need, oftentimes I fear that our first question is not what can I do to help? It's well, what do they do to mess up? Why are they in the position that they're in? But Jesus, I'll remind you in Matthew chapter five said this, you are the light of the world. As a Christian, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, so in the same way a city on a hill shines and a candle on a candlestick, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our good deeds, the good that we do, must never be limited to only those who are in the household of faith or within the body of Christ. We must do our good deeds among unbelievers. And there's a reason for that. One of the things that we're struggling with, I think, in this pandemic as I talk to people is that we're, we're not focusing on the needs of other people. We're focused on our own difficulty. But, but Peter reminds us, do good to your coworkers. Do good to your neighbors. Do good to your enemies. Do good to those who are around you and those who are outside of the faith. I've been trying, out, trying personally to figure out within my own community. Uh, you know, the schools have announced that it's going to be online for the first month at least. And I think it probably will be extended longer than that. But there are so many working families that are struggling with that. How am I going to make it? And I've been praying through and talking to people about how I might be able to serve the needs of my community. And that's what we need to all be thinking is, what can I do to do good for other people? The fourth exhortation is don't forget that others are watching. Notice in verse 12, he says, do these good deeds among the Gentiles that they may see. The Boston Missionary Society shared a story uh, about in 1805, there was a, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors that came to meet together with a council of people in Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian message, message by a pastor named Mr. Cram. And he was a part of the Boston Missionary Society. And after the sermon, a response was given by one of the chiefs who was among the Indian uh, tribes. And among other things, here's what he said. Brother, we've been told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors, and we are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again of what you have said. In that statement, what he was saying was these Christians or people that had named the name of Christ, they weren't 
they weren't doing the things that they should be doing, but they were watching them. They were observing the way that the Christians lived because the way that they lived had an impact on whether they would receive the message about Jesus Christ. And his fifth exhortation in that is don't forget your purpose. I want to focus for a minute on the last phrase of verse 12, that they would glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, some scholars believe that that refers to the return of Christ. And others believe that it's a reference to the day of salvation. But either way, on that day of visitation, they need a relationship with God. And that's why God has placed you in the circle of unbelievers that he's placed you in. And they will not have a relationship with God and be able to glorify God on that day of visitation if you are not living a life that is an effective witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, how shall they who are unbelievers Believe in him of whom they have not heard. God has called all of us to live our lives in such a way among unbelievers that they would see our good works and those good works would draw them to Christ so that on the day of visitation, whether it's when Christ returns or the day of their salvation, they might be able to glorify God. An authentic life, this is what I want you to remember today and I want you to write this down. An authentic life makes an effective witness. Write that down in the margins of your Bible or maybe put it in the comments. An authentic life makes an effective witness. And Peter goes on to give us some qualities and uh, and actions of an authentic life. And I think these are so timely for the time in which we live right now. Notice in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, excuse me, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Notice what he says in verse 13, that Christians are to live in submission to government authority. In verse 13, he says, to every human institution. In Matthew chapter 22, we are called to civil obedience. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are called to sincerely pray for those in authority. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 that there is no government authority that has not been ordained by God. But what's really striking about verse 13, listen especially to what Peter's saying, I want you to grasp this, that we are to be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor. Now to those who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, when they would have received this as Christians, Peter is telling them to honor a man named Nero, who I've said before was beginning to persecute Christians. He was corrupt. He was cruel. He was unjust. And he was not a person that would be worthy of respect. Think about that for a moment. A man that was killing Christians and persecuting them. Peter writes to these believers and he says, be subject to these human institutions, even if it's an emperor that you don't like. But notice also in verse 14, another group are mentioned. Those Those are called governors in in the Bible. Those are local authorities who keep the peace and uphold the law. They're they're in our day would be local, county, and state. They they would be law enforcement, people that punish those who are bad and, and then also reward those who do good. And the principle and the idea here is very simple, that as Christians, we are to live in submission to our government, that God's people are to be known as law abiding, respectful citizens not rebels and outlaws. Persecution was happening to these people. Their rights were being violated. 
Christians were being arrested and tortured and persecuted and even killed. And they were still told to submit to their government. You don't have to like the government. You you don't have to like your president. You may not like the powers that be. But as long as that government is not asking you to do something that is in direct contradiction to the word of God, or they're not asking you to do something that would lead to sin or disobedience to God, then we as God's children are commanded and expected to live in submission to that government. In the time in which we live right now, there are Christians who live in communist countries. There are Christians who live outside of the United States who live under brutal, ruthless regimes. And as long as those regimes are not asking them to do something that's contrary to the word of God, then they, just like we are, are called to submit to those government authorities. So an authentic life that would make an effective witness is a life that submits to government authorities. And Peter, in the next few verses, gives us some reasons why. Notice in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God our submission to our government shows our submission to our God notice in verse 13 be subject for the Lord's sake verse 15 for this is the will of God in verse 16 but living as servants of God That word servant, it means bond slaves. We are free, yet we are to submit to God and by our walk proclaim his praises. Not using our freedom to cause evil and harm, but using our freedom to choose to submit to those who rule over us. And it's obvious when you read verse 15 what's implied, that the culture was throwing out slanderous accusations against Christians because he says by your actions you can put to silence those who are saying these things in ignorance. They were saying things like they're loyal to a different king. They're a rebellious sect. They want to overthrow the government. They're subversive. These are things that we find throughout the book of Acts that were said against the church. But as we submit to God and we do good, we can silence the ignorance of foolish men. To put the silence, it means to muzzle. It makes me think of a trip that we took when I was a kid. We didn't have at that time you know, portable DVD players in the cars and, you know, Kindles and iPads and phones and all the things that we have today. I honestly don't know how any parents survived road trips during that day, but we did. But it makes sense now, having gone uh, on road trips with my own kids, why my mom did this. We were returning from New Braunfels one time and uh, we were driving and got to Katy. I just remember that we were in Katy because we were about 35 or 40 minutes away from home and we were driving my mom crazy. And she finally just turned around and said, if you will shut up and not say one more word from here all the way to home, I will give you $500. And me, being the completely obedient child that I was, but also desiring the $500, from Katie all the way to my house at 539 Rainy River, I didn't say one word. I didn't make one sound, not one peep. And when my dad pulled the van into the driveway, put it in park, and the doors were open, and I got out, I asked my mom for the $500, which she still owes me to this day. But the reason she did that was she wanted me to just stop talking. And that's the idea that Peter is is putting out here in this verse, to render them speechless, to render someone unable to speak or to say something against you. In other words, you're to live your life in such a way and do good deeds before others 
so that when they say things against you, your good deeds will render those accusations useless, will silence them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then a couple of sentences later, Jesus said that statement that we read earlier, let your light so shine before men. We need to let people see our good works because in seeing our good works, they ultimately see God. Because an authentic life makes an effective witness and that light, that life, excuse me, is to be lived out in the broad daylight of culture. As children of God, we are to be respectful, law-abiding citizens who are consumed with living out our good works before others so that they might be able to glorify God on the day of visitation, that they might come to know Christ. But then in verse 17, Peter gives us some more qualities of that authentic life. Not only do authentic believers submit to the government. Notice what he says in verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. You should highlight verse 17 in your Bible. Maybe take a minute and just write that, just type it out in the comments. Uh, just those words are so powerful for the time and the place and the culture that we live in today. The first two words of verse 17 if we as Christians would live these out every day, it would obliterate and take care of so many of the things that cause us problems in our culture today. He says, first of all, honor everyone. To honor means to recognize the value of someone. As children of God, we are called to honor and value and respect all people. Regardless of their faith in Christ, their godless lifestyles, their skin color, or their attitudes toward Christians, we are called to honor and respect all people. Let me just say this. There is no place for racism of any kind in any child of God. We are called to honor all men. There's no place in the Christian life for thinking that you're better than someone else. An authentic life that makes an effective witness for Christ is a life that honors all men. Why must we honor all men? Well, to make an effective witness, those who are without Christ, they need to see our good works and be ready for the day of the Lord. So many people, I believe, and you talk to people, are turned off to the message of the gospel, not because the gospel lacks power or truth, but because of what they have seen in the lives of Christians. I've said many times before in conversations with people that I believe, and this is not an over excuse me, an overly simplistic look at the world. I believe that the gospel of Jesus is the cure for what ails us in this world. It is the cure for racism. It is the cure for any form of injustice. It is the cure for the division that we find among us. And therefore, the gospel is what must be proclaimed. And when you preach the cross, you preach the value of every human life because God so loved the world, all of mankind, that he gave his only son on the cross. We are called to honor everyone. And in doing so, we live an authentic life. But also he says to love the brotherhood. Jesus said that the defining mark of followers of Christ 
is love for one another in John chapter 13 and verse 35. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another. Why? Why should we love the brotherhood? Why should we love the body of Christ? Because that shows authentic love and that love is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. Many people struggle with the church. They struggle because they've seen hypocrisy. They struggle because they've seen judgmental attitudes and spirit. But as Christian people, we are called to love the church. We are called to love one another. And hopefully when the world sees the way that we love one another, they will see the way that Christ has loved them on the cross. He then says in verse 17, fear God. And that's the motivation behind all of our our obedience is an honor and a reverence for God. And then honor the king. Again, he calls them back to honor the person, to honor the emperor who is is, uh, treating them poorly and persecuting them and violating their rights. Let me just make this point of application here. When a nation has a president that you don't agree with politically, honor him. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican and there's a Democrat president or you're a Democrat and there's a Republican president. We are all as Christians called to do the same thing. And that is to honor the one who is leading us, to honor those that God has allowed to be put in place in our lives. Respect them, pray for them. You can disagree with them, but we must always show respect. An authentic life makes an effective witness. I read the story of an American missionary couple who had returned to the U.S. by ship after many, uh, several decades of faithful service in Africa. And on board their ship was a very important diplomat who, when they, when they showed up at the harbor, received VIP treatment, not only during the voyage, but when they showed up at the harbor. When they arrived there in New York, a crowd and a banded, band had gathered together to welcome the politician. And when he walked down the gangplank, there was music and loud applause that erupted as he uh, came into everyone's view. And there was a motorcade that whisked them away. And quietly, with no fanfare, no attention, no music, no applause, the missionary couple walked arm in arm down the gangplank, stepping onto American soil for the first time in 30 years. And after a period of silence, the husband turned to his wife and he said, Honey, it doesn't seem right that after all these years, we would have nobody to greet us while this man got such a grand reception. And the wife put her arms around her husband and gently reminded him, but honey, we're not home yet. And what a difference it would make in all of our lives, I believe, if we lived under that reality, that we're not home yet, that our home awaits awaits us. But I want my life here to make a difference for the cause of Christ. I want to live an authentic Christian life so that my witness for Christ will be effective. I want to live a life here that is genuine and without hypocrisy so that when I see my Savior face to face and when I'm finally at home, I'm received with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I fear that far too many Christians are living as though this earth is our home. But that day of visitation that Peter referred to in this passage is coming. And the effectiveness of our witness is affected by our authenticity. And I want to encourage you to live as Peter did, an authentic life. Live as an authentic follower of Christ so that your witness for him will be effective. Do not adopt the sinful attitudes of your culture. 
Live with integrity. Do good to others. Live as law-respecting citizens and value every life. And with your life, show the love of Christ for others. And in doing so, you'll live a life that can lead others to the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, I just want to pray that over us. I want to pray specifically verse 17 over our lives today. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and your goodness in our lives. And we confess, Lord, today that this world is feeling less and less like home. And I pray that you might use that in our lives, God, to help us be an effective witness for the cause of Christ. There are so many around us who need Jesus, and so help us to honor everyone. Help us to value people as Christ did on the cross. And help us to love the church, to love the brotherhood, and to, to come together as one in the body of Christ so that we can be an effective witness for you. And Lord, may we fear you, may we honor you and reverence you with our lives. And help us to honor those who are in government power and authority in our lives. We, we don't always agree with what's being done by our politicians, but help us as Christians to be law-abiding citizens who respect their leaders and pray for those government officials. Help us to live an authentic life and give us an effective witness for the cause of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.